You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Deborah Robertson, a humanities librarian at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. The following is the audio from the Business of Publishing Screenwriting Edition panel discussion. We invited four local screenwriters from Baltimore to share their experiences. Joe Tropia, who is the curator of films and photographs and digital projects coordinator at the Maryland Historical Society, a former journalist, videographer, creator of the documentaries Hit and Stay from 2013 and Sickies, making films in 2018. Dina Fischionaro, who is creator of the feature documentary Moms and Meds from 2015, available on Amazon, co-founder of the Baltimore chapter of Films Fatals, recipient of the Generation Next screenwriting grant, and currently teaches film and moving image at Stevenson University. Then we have David Warfield. His featured credits include director writer of Rose from 2015, writer and co-producer of Line Watch and Kill Me Again. He's a member of the WGAW, an American Film Institute fellow currently an associate professor of screenwriting, film, and media arts at Morgan State University. And finally, we have Jimmy George, co-writer and co-producer of WNUF Halloween Special from 2013, co-writing and producing What Happens Next Will Scare You, and was awarded the best screenplay at the 2013 Killer Film Fest. For more podcast information, check out the Enoch Pratt Free Library at www.prattlibrary.org and also SoundCloud and iTunes. Uh, so um, back in the 90s, that is when I started doing this, um, the, there was a show called Project Greenlight. Have you guys heard of that? Um, and it's, uh, I think it's, there's another season still going on. Um, at the time, it was the it was a big deal. It was like uh, any screenwriter anywhere could have an opportunity to get a million dollars to make their movie. So it was like a huge thing. And uh, <clears throat> at the time, there was no social media. There were still message boards. That's that's how this all started for me. Um, and Project Greenlight was the thing where you entered your script, and it was a peer review contest. So it wasn't just that you had producers in Hollywood reading it, but you had your peers. Anyone in the world could read your script um, through this HBO contest. And I started a message board uh, basically saying, hey, guys, let's uh, post your AOL instant messenger name so we can all communicate. And uh, this message board kind of blew up and... Basically, they became like a social group in L.A. without me because I was in Baltimore. <laughs> so they'd go bowling, they'd go to the bar, they'd see movies together. And here I was like, cool, guys. <laughs> Have a good time. So uh, long story short, one of my first friends that I, I started communicating with in that group, his script came in the top 10 of Project Greenlight. And he was actually in the first episode. Um so he rode the momentum of that to get uh, funding for the feature. So even though he didn't win, he was able to get funding. And uh, one thing led to another. 
I was able to get a uh, literary agent through his literary agent uh, with my first script, which later to find out she was a horrible agent, which is why I was able to get her. Um, she didn't have a good, a good uh, taste for what a good script was. Um, but I didn't know that at the time. I was excited. Everybody had told me, all, all you need to do is get a literary agent. You're set as a screenwriter. Everything else you just write and they'll get the, they'll get the money for you. That's not true. Um, even I have friends today who have both a literary agent and a manager, and they still do most of the legwork on their own. They're the ones who are kind of uh, opening the doors, and then their manager, which we're going to get into later, but their manager and their agent kind of does the legal aspects and the, the negotiating, but they themselves are doing the work to get the interest still. Um, so anyway, uh, I moved out to Hollywood to work on this film, this feature film, uh, and I worked on it. It was supposed to be a $2 million budget movie, um, and uh, I worked on it for 18 weeks um, out of the San Diego Film Commission, and I had never learned anything about movies, and the funding got pulled. I never got paid, um, and so <laughs> I worked 18 weeks with no pay, um, so... I ended up moving back to Baltimore and I was contractually obligated to that agent for four years. Um, and so I've never even sought an agent since then. Um, and a few years later, after I had kind of given up on it, um, I had a friend of mine who was a lot younger. He was a filmmaker and he came to see me at my work and he said, let's make a movie together. And uh, since then we've made seven feature films in Baltimore. Um, most of them are self-funded. We've crowdfunded a few. Um, so we've played in festivals all over the world and blah, blah, blah. So, uh, doing it ourselves is what, how I've kind of, if you want to call it broken in. So my story is different from David and Jimmy. <laughs> I took a very traditional route towards screenwriting, which was studying film in both undergrad at Syracuse University and then graduate school at Columbia University in New York. Um, and that is particularly a program that is known for its strength in screenwriting. So we all get a very solid foundation in writing going through that program, you know, and I truly believe what I learned there, which is that without a strong script, it doesn't matter if you have the hottest and most expensive new camera, right, or the hottest new actress or actor out there, um, that people aren't going to engage with your film unless there's a really good foundation of story there. Um, and so from, from school, I just began, I also trained as a director, and so I consider myself an independent writer slash director in that I've never done the Hollywood thing. Um, I, I don't write my scripts to sell them necessarily. I write them to make them. Um, and so that's what I've been doing for the past, oh, now I'm going to really date myself, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. <laughs> Um, I've made and written one documentary film, but I primarily work um, in the narrative short and narrative feature film space. Um, I've participated in screenwriting residencies, screenwriting labs, screenwriting grants. So if you have questions about, um, you know, participating 
in any of those sort of um, like support systems for writers and directors. I'd be happy to talk about that later also. So right now um, I have two feature film scripts in development, both of which I've written. One is an original story and one is an adaptation of my friend's novella. Um, you know, and so the plan for those two stories are to then eventually direct them. But first comes money, and that's a whole other story. So. Uh, my name's Joe, and uh, my story is different than David and Jimmy and Dina's. Um, but I am uh, an indie filmmaker. Uh, I make uh, independent documentaries. So I don't write standard uh, screenplays. Um, I approach it somewhat differently. I did not go to film school. Instead, I worked at a video store for 10 years, which was like a film school. Uh, I don't know if anyone remembers Video American, but I was there for 10 years. Um, yes, Cold Spring, Charles Village. Worked in the DC stores. Um, so uh, that was my film school, and uh, I always had friends uh, who made movies, and I, I ended up uh, helping them make their movies, either on the crew or in front of the camera. Um, so uh, that's kind of my entry into the industry. Um, I don't know if I've broken into it, but uh, I've had two um, feature-length documentaries uh, that have played festivals, and my most recent one, Sickies Making Films, will be opening at the Parkway on Friday, November 30th. So um, come if you can. That, yeah, that would be nice. Um, that would be awesome. If you haven't been to the Parkway before, you should definitely check it out. Okay, so the next question, guys. What is the Writers Guild of America? What does it do and why should you care? Well, you're a member, <laughs> For all of the movies you see generally uh, in television shows, Produced by companies that are signatories to the Writers Guild of America. Writers Guild of America is a pretty tight union, not unlike the Directors Guild of America and uh, the Screen Actors Guild and so forth. The Hollywood part of the film industry is pretty heavily unionized. Um, and the Writers Guild offers lots of. Uh, resources to non-guild members. If you go to their website, Writers Guild of America, that is probably the best launch pad to spread out. And there's a few other websites I can tell you about. But the Writers Guild website is full of really useful resources. Um, and you're getting, uh, you know, it's not commercialized per se. So they're not trying to sell you things related to screenwriting. Uh, and they list a lot of resources that are very useful to writers. They have a, you know, like a, a separate membership level from the more official membership. Um, so the Writers Guild of America is, uh, has its uh, sister organization, the Writers Guild of America East, which is New York-based, 
but they play by the same rules and have the same contracts. So the Writers Guild essentially um, helps with the uh, arbitration, like if there's argument about who's getting screen credit on some movie that got produced. Um, they provide uh, a system of registering screenplays uh, so that it's in addition to, we can talk about this too in the next question, um, in addition to copywriting. Uh, you have to care about the Writers Guild because it really covers uh, almost all commercial motion picture making, television, or feature film. And because technology changes, I mean, they're getting into the new media world and have been. I mean, that was one of the big, the last strike was 2008, I want to say, and the strike was partly about, you know, these issues. Um, but there are many things that happen outside of the union, like all the projects that we, everybody sitting here has recently done, none of them were union. Um, uh, I did an independent feature a few years ago where we cheated a little bit with the union thing, but we just did it non-union. Um, so the Writers Guild, I'm trying to think what else they do in general. Um, they prepare and argue the contracts for writers that are, you know, working in television and film. Uh, and they enforce those contracts, and they also organize, ad administer all the residual payments that some writers get uh, through the, they're the middleman between the companies and the writers. So if you write a, uh, you know, a script and it's on a movie screen, then when it goes to television, there are different kinds of residual payments that go to writers. And the Writers Guild uh, enforces and, and handles all that, uh, directing the revenue that the studios or companies uh, owe to writers, depending on how and where the film is seen, what venues is sold to cable, to syndication, is to foreign territories, you know, overseas and all that kind of thing. Um, but, and they also, you know, it's a relatively small union, I guess, if we compare it to Teamsters, um, but it's a strong union with a long history. Uh, to get into the Writers Guild, they have uh, uh, a few criteria, like, it, basically it works like this. If somebody decides to hire you to write a movie, and the company that hires you is a Writers Guild signatory, which almost all of them are, then that gets you into the union. I think it's two television or three television episodes or one feature, something like that. They change it once in a while. What? Uh, so to get in, you have to you know, be a persistent person who writes and writes and writes and eventually you know, gets some kind of... Like the first feature that I wrote that got produced was non-union, but the next one I got put in. So, uh, David, what do you have to do to maintain it once you're in? Well, that's another thing. That's... You know, the union is, for example, there are conditions. If you don't work, if you don't get jobs, then you don't get health care, for example. 
you have to make a certain amount of money within the union to get their health care. Uh, you don't really have to, there's no other condition of the union. Uh, they don't kick you out or if you don't work, but you don't get the health insurance. Okay, gotcha. You can stay in it. Uh, there, there is a rule, though. I think they, if you haven't done anything in a long time, they, re, they might reduce your status in the union somehow. Uh, I have to go look at the rules. I forget. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it's out there. It exists. Uh, you, you break in by having someone hire you, you know, uh, to write something or to purchase uh, a script from you that you wrote. Um, and all of that, like a lot of the stuff seems distant maybe or difficult, and it is, but it's no more difficult really than any other, you know, serious endeavor, I think. Um, and the Writers Guild uh, is, I think, you know, and I, we could talk about this a lot, but, you know, it does protect writers, too. That's part of their function um, from abusive uh, or exploitational practices by producers. I know that might sound shocking, but producers sometimes, yeah. uh, you know, getting writers to do stuff for free and that kind of stuff. The Writers Guild pushes back on those kinds of practices. So like any labor union, you know, it, 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 it seeks to protect the members. Um, yeah, like I'll chime in. I've had um, opportunities as a writer, um, and I only had those opportunities because I was not a guild member. Um, there's that too. Because um, it's just like with the Screen Actors Guild, if you're a SAG member, uh, you're not going to get cast in a movie that you know is not a SAG signatory. So it has its positives and its negatives. There's been paid jobs I've gotten that I only got because I was not a member of the Writers Guild. And I think that the, the big point to remember about all this that there's is the Hollywood thing, right? Yeah. Uh, Hollywood feature films, you know, major television shows. But there's whole other worlds of writing and filmmaking that aren't that. And I think it's great because we all have worked in those other worlds too. You know, and, and uh, that is the independent film um, and other sort of non-union ways of working and writing. Uh, so that, and I emphasize this to students because I teach at Morgan now. Um, and we have quite a few great students who go through there and, and and choose to major in screenwriting. And several have done, uh, you know, okay, even if they weren't, uh, even if the gigs they got weren't screenwriting, you know what yeah. I mean? Um, so, but I tell them the same thing. You know, there's a whole world of films that's not the multiplex necessarily or the Hollywood movie by one of the major studios or big companies. Does anybody else have anything to chime in on about the writers? The only, the only thing I'll say, I mean, the, the one interesting thing they do is um, I know people who have written uh, a draft of famous movies who their names aren't in the credits. And that was decided by the Writers Guild. So they, they also decide who doesn't get credited, even if they do work on the film. Uh, you know, so it's just they do a lot of things. Yeah. The last uh, time they changed the arbitration process, uh, they 
they always want to put the emphasis on the original writer. So they, they, they give the benefit of the doubt to the original writer and uh, that person who has written 51% of the script. Who decides that? Other writers. They have an arbitration board and other writers look at all the material leading up to the script and they make a decision if there's any question, if there's more than one writer or writers in dispute and that kind of thing. Because sometimes people like to work with co-writers, you know. Uh, and there are other times when writers... Um, it may be that a company bought a script from a writer, then they hired another writer to rewrite the writer, and then it becomes who gets the screen credit. And who gets the screen credit is important in the Hollywood model because that means they get the money, the, the residual money, not just the upfront money getting paid to write, but the money down the road that comes back to you uh, in the form of uh, these, these residual payments. So um, it becomes an important thing. But, you know, there haven't been, at least I'm not aware of a whole lot of big controversies there. I yeah. think occasionally there is some, but uh, usually the arbitration is pretty fair and stuff. But it, that's just another function of the guild and uh, how they uh, seek to help writers. Okay, does um, Dina or Joe have anything to say? Chime in on this question? Okay, then we can move on a little bit to the next question. In screenwriting, why is networking so important and what are the best ways to network? I can take this one. Yeah. Um, so as a film student, I was very shy and introverted. And now 20 years later, I'm just slightly less shy and slightly less introverted. Um, and, it w and honestly, though, it, it was always really hard for me to go up and talk to people. Um, and I, something that I tell my students, because I teach at Stevenson University, um, is no matter how hard and uncomfortable that might be to start practicing it now while they're young, um, you know, and I, I didn't practice it a lot when I was younger. And I feel like in a way that did kind of hold me back in certain aspects of my career. So now that I'm older and wiser, I feel like I'm making up for lost time. And now I'll just go like run up to anybody, you know, here's my card. Because so much of what we do in this industry is about making connections with people, knowing people, um, other people connecting you with jobs, other filmmakers, mentors. Um, so I have found that participating in screenwriting labs has also helped me network um, again because I'm meeting um, other writers and um, other filmmakers and so for instance um, I have participated twice now in one of the local labs it's called the Saul, Saul Zance Innovation Fund um, or Saul Van Zance Innovation Lab um, one was for a short film project um, and the more recent one was for a feature film script and so out of that experience, um, I was able to f form the majority of the Baltimore Women's Media Alliance group um, based around uh, this group of other female filmmakers that I had met um, through the labs. And Oh, sure, I can do that, yeah. So um, Saul Zantz. Uh, I want to say they maybe do a submission opening once or twice a year. Um, you can go to their website and just get some information on what you need to submit. Um, it doesn't 
cost anything, which is great, right? Because submission fees can often be prohibit prohibited for um, film festivals, for labs, for grants, etc. But it's free, um, and you have to answer a series of questions that all have like a word count to them, right? So you can't just sort of ramble. Um, it, and uh, so you submit that, and then you get into the lab. You spend a long weekend meeting with your peers and also meeting with other mentors. Um, and then participating in the lab enables you to then go and apply for up to $75,000 worth of a grant for that project. So um, two weeks ago, I sat down with a group of amazing mentors who gave me one-on-one -on -one feedback on uh, one of my current scripts, right? And these are people like Rada Blank, who is a producer and a screenwriter on Spike Lee's She's Gotta Have It Netflix series, not the original film, but the, but the current Netflix series. Rada has been through the Sundance Screenwriting Lab. She's an actress, screenwriter, director, and she gave me the most amazing notes on my script. We sat down for three hours, right, one-on-one, -on -one, and it's so incredibly valuable. Mary Heron was another one of my mentors. Um, she is the writer and director of I Shot Andy Warhol and American Psycho, right? So participating wow. in labs yeah. hooks you up um, with, with people like that, right? And people who have paved the way for me as a female. And, you know, they weren't just female um, mentors, but as a woman, we know that it's harder to be a woman in this industry. And we could talk about that a little bit, too. Um, people who have come before me and have helped pave the way a little bit. So now I really relish any opportunity that I have to meet and talk with new people. Um, networking may sound icky, but it's, uh, it is a necessary evil. Um, and, uh, I'll just, I can't really speak to screenwriting and networking, but generally for filmmaking, um, I would recommend, uh, going to your local film festival. Film festivals are a great place to network. We happen to have some great film festivals in this town, uh, and um, it's worth it just to be able to talk to other filmmakers. There are often many workshops and panel discussions at film festivals. There's so many opportunities to meet people. And for me personally, um, that's how I got distribution for, uh, for both of my films was by going to film festivals, getting it out there in front of audiences and, and meeting distributors. And in addition to that, um, when you play at film festivals sometimes uh, and you have like documentaries like what I make, occasionally professors will show up to your screenings and be interested in your film and invite you to play at their university. And universities pay kind of well. They, they will pay you an honorarium to screen your work. Um, I met my the co-writer of my recent film at Rutgers where I was invited to show uh, my last film. So... Networking got me a, a partner and a little extra change in my pocket. Um, but yeah, um, go to your local film festivals. Yes. Um, I would like to have... Here, we'll give you this one, and then I'll do it. Okay, I just want to... It worked. It worked. Oh, sorry. Oh, just it, it, related to all this, um, 
Morgan in the Baltimore Film Office and Hopkins are, have a partnership. We're going into our 12th or 13th year, the Baltimore Screenwriters Competition. And we added a couple of years ago a short film category. So what you do is you submit your script, either a short film script, 30 pages or under, or a feature length screenplay, which is more in the 90, 100 pages range. Uh, and um, there are prizes. You know, we have a system of a first level of readers, a second level, and then some industry professionals who are the final readers, right? And they select first, second, and third place winners. And there's a little cash prize. And we have a, we have a panel and an event at the Maryland Film Festival every year where we give the awards. And it's Baltimore-specific, right? It's supposed to be films or stories that could, could be shot in Baltimore or, uh, or, or about Baltimore. They don't have to be about Baltimore. They can be. It's, it's pretty broad, really. But, you know, they, they, that is part of it. And that website is at the Baltimore Office of Promotion in the Arts, Baltimore Screenwriting Competition. And I wanted to mention it because a lot of people can benefit from, you know, it's one more thing you can say to people who, if you're attempting to maybe sell a script to the marketplace or get, uh, you know, funding for a project, you know, we, we were, you know, second place in this contest and, and we got and we did this and we did this. And because it's local, I just wanted to mention again that, that, that we continue to do that uh, event every year. Yes, sir. It's a, it's a collaboration with Morgan State, the Baltimore Film Office, and Johns Hopkins Film Program. I'm going to chime in because I think this is a really important topic. Um, yeah, we have the Creative Alliance here, um, which is a huge resource. Um, they have uh, filmmaker meetups. They have uh, short film screenings by local people. It's all local based. So it's, and they even have... Um, uh, yeah, they do the screenwriter meetups. Yeah, Elena. Um, and Elena Mascot, uh, look her up. Uh, the Creative Alliance is just such a huge resource and a huge uh, place where you can meet local artists trying to do the same thing that you're doing. And uh, if you look up uh, 48 hour film festivals, you can, you know, join in on those. You can join a team. You know, you there's the 29 hour film festivals. Yeah, 72 hour. There's these hour film festivals where you either have two days, three days or four days to make a movie and you get paired up with like six people and you guys all work together to make a movie and then uh those people you might end up working on a project with in some role um and then like they said the film festivals we've got the maryland film festival there's a baltimore uh, there's there's the bump fest i don't know if that's still going on um there's the annapolis film festival there's all the best of there's so many local film fests and that's where you meet a lot of local people who are involved, not only in the audience, but people who have their films there. So yeah, and every single—I don't know about you guys, but every single person I know who has is doing this is only doing this because they like kind of built a team based on networking, you know. So it was like the 
the core thing that led to their success was connecting with other people who wanted to do the same thing that they were doing. So, yeah, I think networking is like the most important aspect of this. All right. Thank you all so much for that. The next one is a wonderful question, especially since um, you work at a college, David. Um, is it necessary to go to film school, basically majoring in screenwriting in college? No. <laughs> Not necessary. It's most necessary to be a writer is to write, which it might sound simplistic for me to say that, but you know, um, most of us mere mortals have a really hard time sitting in a room by ourselves for hours on end trying to create something you know of great value and interest by writing, and uh, that's the hardest part of it. At least it is to me. Um, if you can go to a film school or a graduate program, one probably the most important thing that that does give you, in my view, anyway, you guys might have a different opinion, is networking. Yeah. You know, uh, it's not so much that anybody can teach you how to write. It's more that the people that you meet in that setting or in some of these workshops and things like Dina was talking about, right, um, the more people you meet, the more a networking um, capacity and the more you learn and, you know, some kind of contact uh, or a series of contacts, three or four or five degrees of separation will become real for you, you know. Uh, it, yeah, because, you know, I think it's, you don't want to, um, uh, you've got to participate in the broader world where this is happening in order to move forward, I think. But yeah, you don't have to go to film school. And what do you think, Dina? You also work at a college. Yeah, so as a representative of higher ed film program, I'm supposed to say, <laughs> yes, you should go to film school. But I agree with David. Of course, you don't have to. And I only tell my students to, to actually pursue graduate school if they think they want to teach at some point, because you normally do need an MFA or some terminal degree to be able to teach in higher ed. However, there are many other avenues you can take, right? And college is really cost prohibitive. And so, you know, not everybody is in a position to be able to spend tens of thousands of dollars to go to film school. So um, I, I would just recommend seeing what other resources are available in your area, right? Maybe it's a weekend workshop. Maybe you come to Enoch Pratt Library and check out all of the screenwriting books that they have, right? And study those books and practice writing and join the free, like, peer review screenwriting groups and whatnot. There are definitely other ways to do this. Yeah. And, and remember, you know, uh, if you think about uh, our film history, which really is about 100, 110 years old, right? Because movies really were didn't really start till the 1900, more or less. Uh, you know, pardon? It's that young. Yeah. It's that young. Yeah. Um, what the first thing you could call a feature film is probably about 100 years ago, 110. Um, but um, what was I going to say? I forgot. Oh, all these, and remember, up into the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, right? All the classic films we love. Uh, you know, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, you know, um, uh, Wizard of Oz, I could go on forever, right? There were no film schools. There was no such thing. So I think USC was the first film school. 
But now, because, and I, this is an important thing I want to say before I forget it, at least I feel it's important. It used to be, when I was in film school, it was more like, oh, so you can go to Hollywood. But the skills that, you know, cinematic storytelling skills, the ability to, to write or to shoot or to edit film, visual, motion picture, visual medium, right, is in wide demand in a broad set of areas that are not Hollywood movies. You know, everything from political campaigns, social justice, all the different things that you see. Friends of mine started a company here to produce videos for people who needed for them for their websites that were well-produced, well-written, and that kind of thing, Uh, not just, you know, picking up your phone and, 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 uh, you know, hosing off some shots. And so there are a number of uh, venues where writing, shooting, directing, editing are required. And most of my graduates, I have several graduates that are working in Los Angeles or Atlanta, you know, uh, and New York. But I have many more students who are working and things they invented for themselves, you know, more entrepreneurial, uh, more independent filmmaking, um, and that kind of thing. So again, I just want to emphasize that Hollywood is a thing, but it's not the only thing. I just also want to add um, AR and VR are really big now too, right? And so you can think, well, somebody also has to write like the scripts for Alexa. Like, who does that? Those are writers, right? And they have to understand the type of writing that we do. So you can really start to think, like, way out of the box, right? Well, yeah, and it's true, too, because um, I was just reading about the guy, the writer in the the Saw movies. Yeah. He's now working, writing exclusively for the video games. Marcus Dustin? Must be, yeah. I can't think of the name, but, but I just was reading about that. You know, he's pretty much going over to the game side. The video games have become so narrative, such storytelling, you know, sort of media. Yeah. Oh, uh, that they, you know, they there's a lot of overlap between these video games and films. So writers are now migrating over there as well. Okay, you know, you broke into a couple of things that we're going to talk about later um, at the panel, but. Um, I'm going to skip over one question and then go back to it later. Um, The question that I'm going to ask next is something that you brought up a little, David. Um, Is L.A. the place to be for screenwriting? And I know you guys have spoken a lot about what we have here in Baltimore. What do you guys think? Who wants to go first? I'm sure we all have Chinese. None of us are in L.A. right now. Um, Well, it's it's still the sort of center and there is definitely uh, a benefit to being near the various people and and agents and managed producers and actors and you know other writers and all the directors you know if there's more of that around you and you're in contact with it more obviously there's going to be some benefits to that but i do not think uh, just like you don't have to go to film school, you don't have to live in any specific place either. I, um, you know, depending on what your lifestyle is, your age, your ambitions, you know, 
uh, yeah, you know, go to Hollywood if if that's possible for you. But it but it certainly isn't something that should um, inhibit anyone from writing screenplays or otherwise. You don't have to be there to do that. There may be some benefits to not doing that. Uh, I we work with. Um, Norm Steinberg, who uh, runs the uh, graduate program up at Long Island U in screenwriting. And Norm comes down to visit us about once a year. And uh, he stands in the room and he tells students, whatever you do, don't go to Hollywood. He said, all the good work I ever got my hands on came out of, you know, uh, it came from a more authentic place. It came from people. He was a Baltimore guy for a while. He's got screenwriting credit on like Blazing Saddles. I don't know what else. Uh, but he's, you know, so, I mean, that's an interesting comment too. But you don't have to be anywhere. That's one of the beauties of writing, right? You can, you can, you can pretend you live in LA if you want, and you can still write. You don't have to, you don't have to live there, you know? Uh, eventually, you'll end up there probably in some one way or the other, but, um, you know, uh, New York, LA, and now we have, you yeah. know, Atlanta. I also, can I just add, I think it depends on the type of writing that you want to do, right? So, and not everything is so black and white, but when I think of Hollywood, I think of TV and I think of commercial films, like the big Hollywood blockbusters. When I think of New York, I think of smaller, um, you know, more independent stories and productions. And again, I think the world that we live in now is like, like everything's kind of starting to merge. Um, but if you have a laptop and you have email, you can write and then send your script to somebody, right? So you yeah. can be, you can really be living anywhere. Thank you guys. Anybody else have anything to say? I'll, I'll chime in. Yeah. How you, Joe? Do you have a question first? Okay. Um, I'll just give not personal testimony, but testimony of a good friend of mine. Do you guys know Jamie Nash? Okay, yeah, so there's a guy named Jamie Nash. He grew up in Baltimore. Um, he's really, like, my inspiration as far as, like, career-wise. He sells about a screenplay a year. He lives in Baltimore. Um, he is constantly working, getting hired for rewrites, various, various projects, um, and he lives in Baltimore. And what he does is he schedules a heavy week of meetings once a year, sometimes twice, depending. I don't want to speak for him, but... Um, I know him pretty well, um, and I've asked him these questions. So, um, yeah, he schedules meetings once or twice a year for, like, a week, and then he goes there, and then he comes back, and the rest of the year he lives out of Baltimore, and he is a working screenwriter, you know. Okay, thank you guys for all one of those answers. We're going to go back to the question that I had, I was going to ask before that. So what is a query letter? Why is it important, and is your pitch, which is a part of it, a way of marketing your script? Um, I can't speak to the query letter because I've never actually done those, but I can speak to pitching a little bit, um, not in like the traditional Hollywood sense, but I participated in a screenwriting lab called the Stowe Story Labs in Vermont last year for a feature screenplay. And all we did for three days was to pitch our story oh. ideas. And I learned so much. And again, as a shy and introverted person, that is a part of like the necessary evil of our industry of pitching that terrifies me. 
Um, but it was it was so helpful to just learn how to communicate your story in a really clear and succinct way over and over and over again, you know, to the point where you can do it in your sleep, right? So, like, the first time I pitched, I rambled. I was given, like, all these tiny little plot details, and I went way over time, and everyone was confused about my story. So I would, like, go home every night, and, like, in between the next day's session, and... And, like, revise it and whittle it down. And I kept going and I kept going. And then, you know, by, like, the fifth time on the last day, I was exhausted. <laughs> but I feel like I, I really got it to, like, the next level. And so, yeah, again, p- pitching is just kind of a necessary practice. evil, yeah. what we do. Yeah, and you just have to it's practice makes perfect with pitching. So I agree that any story that you're working on or contemplating you should practice on uh, anybody that walks by you. You know, you want to pitch in like 30 seconds or a minute. If, when I mean, if you want to boil down to the essence so that you can tell your story to somebody and they kind of get it and it doesn't take very long for them to get it because people have short attention spans. Um, but that's a way of telling yourself. If you can't tell your story in a short, concise way, there's probably something wrong with the story you know what I mean it shouldn't be that confusing you know and it, it, you're right I mean, I've done the same thing many times where I just start rambling because I'm a terrible you know I, 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 I'm a flop sweater you know and uh, but you can get through it uh, but the more you tell your story to other people right in the coffee line or whatever the more you're telling yourself about it it's a helpful exercise um, Going to the classic query letter question, um, what people are talking about there is when you mail a, a letter to, let's say, a manager. You want somebody to help you with the script. Uh, and that letter can be effective, and you still have to do the query letter sometimes, although I've heard the query letter pronounced dead by some people. Um, you have to expect a very small return. Agents in general won't even take query letters, but managers will, and maybe other kinds of people will, producers, uh, etc. Um, but the key to the query letter is that it's short, it's friendly, you don't ever send a script with it, you send that pitch with it, a one-liner or a very short sort of indication of, that's, that sounds interesting and intriguing and wonderful. Um, and then if you send it to 100 managers and the lists are out there, you know, you can send it to 100 managers, you might get three letters back. But just as an anecdote, I had a friend uh, at UCLA, um, and we had this same discussion. It wasn't that many years ago, maybe 10. And, uh, you know, she said, I really want to work in television. I want to be on a writer's staff on a series, you know. And I said, well, you know, and I don't know enough people around here because she was from Long Island. And I said, well, here, let's do the query letter thing. We kind of sat down and worked out a query letter. She sent out about 100 of them. And to different producers, showrunners, uh, et cetera, right? And she got, I think, two replies, one of those replies ended up getting her a gig as sort of the coffee person in this writer's room. 
And then about a year and a half later, after she got to know everybody there, they let her write a script. And then she started writing episodes. So she she made a goal, I'm going to work in television. She found some way in, writing 100 letters. She went in as a, you know, gopher, hung around the writer's room for a year. And then she, they, I think the first time they let her co-write a draft. And now she's, you know, well, the series is over now, but she's on a new show now. I forget what the show was. Um, uh, uh, Pretty Little Liars. Nice. That was the show that okay. she was on. Wow. Yeah. Great. So, you know, uh, and, and again, she was Long Island, but she went to graduate school, met some people, and then she didn't think features were for her. She wanted television, and now she's in it. So it can work. It took her six years to get from point A to point B. But she's in now. She's in now. Getting those residual payments. Yeah. I want to chime in on the query letter thing real quick. Um, I'll give a personal anecdote. Uh, so... Ooh. How do you want to... For podcast reasons. Well... You know, Google it up. No, I'm serious. No, it's there's a there's a ton of great websites. So many lay it out and absolutely, you know, if you write uh, how's a how's a new screenwriter get an agent and and, and do the top three hits, just read those. Uh, I was looking through them the other day, thinking about this panel mm-hmm. uh, to see what kind of stuff they were saying. It was all good information, as long as they're not some kind of organization that's asking you to give them money, they're probably okay, yes. right? And the Writers Guild website, you know, that one, and uh, there's a few others that will come right up on a search, and they'll get really in great detail about it. But the basic idea is it's short, certainly a half a page, three-quarters of a page at most. Mm-hmm. It's punchy, and it just makes you want to talk to this person. I don't... That's magic, you know. Writers have to write words that stimulate people's, you know, curiosity and imagination. And probably the shorter something is, the harder it is to write. But they do have a purpose. If nothing else, they force you to figure out who to send letters to, which is a <laughs> important bunch of data in your head. Absolutely. So, um, picking off of he was talking about agents and managers, but you have to do the same thing. You can do the same thing to producers, uh, prospective producers. So how um, a couple of my uh, projects that almost got purchased, that got optioned, which we'll be covering in a minute, um, we specifically, because here's the thing, you write these things, but people aren't just like coming to you like, hey, what did you, what do you got next? What do you got next? No one is doing that. Um, you have to find the, the interested parties. And so uh, our strategy, uh, my partner Chris Martina and I, um, is to, if we have a script, what we do is we find producers who have made similar material in the past. And sometimes that's all they've made is exactly the type of movie that we wrote. And uh, we made, for instance, on this one uh, script called Tombstone, which is about cursed weed, um, (laughs) um, we sought out, we found 300 producers and we sent uh, query letters. And the, here's the thing. So we made them personal. So 
in addition to being short and these one-page descriptions of the project and who we are, we also had to have an awareness of what they had made and why we were writing to them specifically. And it can't be bullshit. Whoops. Uh, sorry. It cannot be... Uh, phony it has to be genuine like you genuinely know who these people are that you're asking for their attention and you're genuinely genuinely interested in them reading your work them specifically and so we wrote 300 query letters each one was different than the other with the personal um note and uh we got 10 responses back and yeah and of those 10 um one not only optioned but then it ended up getting rewritten by Phil Stark, who was the writer of Dude, Where's My Car? And, uh, and uh, he was the head writer on that 70s show. So we had this stoner comedy in the early 2000s written by, uh, rewritten by that 70s show. We were, we were very excited about the prospects of these things. And uh, so, yeah, it, but it came down to the query letter, and it came down to our strategy of seeking out specific producers and it worked out and i would say that that is something that you absolutely need to do and by the way um it used to be the hollywood creative directory but i think i am imd imdb pro everybody knows imdb right it's a internet movie database you can go there and find out about any movie ever made it's a great website, but they now have uh, that website. I think I can't remember. They bought Rotten Tomatoes or Rotten Tomatoes bought them. Anyway, a lot of these websites are owned by the same people now. But the point is, you can find every name and address of every producer, manager, everything you can imagine in IMDb, uh, IMDb Pro uh, if you want to write letters to people. That's but, exactly what we used. Right. The problem with the problem with IMDB Pro is you have to the pro version is you have to pay for it. The free version doesn't give you all that data. But it's not I mean, you can pay for it for, you know, a couple of months and then not pay for it anymore. You don't have to just buy the month. Uh, but that is now the probably the go to or most handy resource for finding names and addresses. And what you correctly pointed out, I think, is people often say, well, how do I know who? There's so many producers or whatever. You go to the movies that you that that are the style and genre, the tone and genre of the story you're working on, and, and you look them up on IMDb by the movie title, and you figure out who wrote it, who produced it, you know, who are the people involved in it. And then if you look, if you do a little homework and look at a lot of different films that are similar in genre to your own idea that you may be working on, you're going to start to see patterns. Oh, this producer did these five horror films or these, these romantic comedies or these low-budget thrillers. or you know. And then you're going to be writing a query letter to somebody who's producing and making material similar uh, in tone and genre you know, to what you're working on. So it's just homework, you know. You gotta suss it out. Yeah. Okay. You guys have given a lot of good information. In fact, some of them are questions that are going to be a little bit further in way. <laughs> um, but next question is: If you guys know, what are the purchase options for selling a script? How are films bought and sold? Take it. You want to go back and forth? All right. Okay. You want to? 
The answer, I guess, is any way possible. Um, if you're already established and you have an agent and or manager, right, obviously that, that infrastructure is going to try and facilitate, you know, any kind of sale. You might be writing scripts for different reasons. One person may write a script with the purpose of trying to sell it on the marketplace. The, you know, the typical you know, studio or production company purchaser. And in that case, you're, you're writing with the intent to sell. Those are called spec scripts. You're writing them speculatively, hoping you can sell them. Other people are writing a script because they want to make it themselves. That's two different animals, right? Um, and still other people write scripts because they just want to try it. And maybe it's just going to be a sample or something. So um, if you're writing to sell, then, you know, this was where the networking thing becomes a big deal. Um, and, in that, you know, maybe, again, an anecdote would be appropriate here. Like I had a friend when I was living in Hollywood, and she'd never wrote a script before. And she wrote a script. She spent was really passionate about it. Spent about six months on it, which is not not uh, many people take much longer than that to write a script to finish it. And when she was done, she gave it to uh, her friend that she had worked with because she was working as like a production assistant on commercials and music videos. She gave it to her friend who read it and thought it was really interesting. And her friend gave it to another friend who happened to work as an assistant for a, hey, Messiah, who, uh, who worked as an assistant for a big time film director. So she gave it to the friend, gave it to the friend, the friend gave it to the film director. The film director decided he wanted to make the movie. And so she never even talked to an agent. You know, now that's an unusual story. They bought the script, they made the movie. Um, that doesn't always happen, obviously. Uh, you know, the path, the normal path to a sale from an unproduced screenwriter is through a manager. You know, agents, all agents really do is negotiate a deal when you've already done all the work. Yeah. They don't do anything for you. <laughs> and even less now than they used to. Um, I would actually, you know, had a movie in theaters and a writing gig and still were getting dissed by agents. You know what I mean? Because they're really, really after the buck. It's not worth their time unless they're going to get a big payday. You know, So the manager is an easier thing to hook up with and more likely to read. And we haven't gotten to that question yet. We just have to talk about that a little bit. But that's really the shortest route. The other route is the networking thing, like the story of my friend. Um, if you're, and that also is one of those deals where you, it's kind of making an argument. You're, you're, if you live in Los Angeles or somewhere, or New York or something, that um, it might be easier to be around those people that would facilitate that, you know, that kind of networking. But again, you know, the same thing could have happened at the Maryland Film Festival. You know, and it doesn't have to be Los Angeles. Um, what was the rest of the question? Um, just how are they bought and sold? So if a company acquires this, I don't know, I don't feel like I'm monopolizing all the talk. And then I'll talk about the, how, this, 
how it's structured in general after 2005? Yeah, I mean, um, if somebody decides they want to buy a script, then they're going to, you know, you're going to talk to an entertainment lawyer or something like that to help with that contract, that negotiation. Um, uh, if you don't have an agent, you don't have to have an agent to sell a script. And uh, the typical ways that's done is that you're offered an X number. If you're not union, then there's a thing that, to negotiate. If you're a union, there's, uh, you know, the union provides minimum amounts, right? Minimal, minimum scale. So minimum scale, if you're hired to write a movie, is X number of dollars. But if you already wrote the movie, right, on your own as a spec script, then it becomes a matter of how bad do they want it. If they want it bad enough, they'll pay more money for it. Um, there used to be things called bidding wars on scripts once in a while. It's pretty rare now by comparison. Um, but, you know, you have to get that script that you wrote in front of someone who has the power to say yes to it. And that path is... Uh, there are people like professional readers, development people that work at companies whose job it is to read scripts and to reject them, or almost all of them. Yeah. And then if they if it passes that reader, it might go up the ladder to the next person. And if it passes that reader, it may go to somebody who really matters. And that's the typical kind of situation. But then there's all the atypical situations. Like the first feature that I wrote that got made into a movie was totally word of mouth. That's awesome. You know, it had nothing to do with agents or managers or any of that. You know, I subsequently did get a number of gigs. But even when I was at uh, ICM for 11 years. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, and not one in that whole 11 years, every job I got was through me and not through the agent. But the agent. Oh, in, International Creative Management is a big agency in, in Hollywood. Yeah, they, like the, they still exist? In yes. Yeah, it's just different. Yes. It's different now, though. They swallowed some other agencies. and you, They're always changing yeah. these places. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like you have to immerse yourself into that world a bit and just exploit any contact or networking thread that you can figure out, you know? Your cousin, you know, used to cut, uh, you know, Denzel Washington's hair. Okay, that's a good place to start. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm serious. You know, it happens this way all the time. So, you know, there's the front door and the side door and the back door to these things. And um, you kind of just, you know, use every uh, trick in the book kind of a thing. Somebody else? I was going to jump in and talk about what you do when you want to purchase somebody else's original source material to turn into your own project, which is known as optioning. Um, because like I said earlier, I've never actually tried to sell my own scripts because I like to keep them and make them for myself. But what I have done is I have optioned somebody else's play, which I've turned into a film. And I've just recently optioned my friend's novella, novella, which I'm turning into a feature script to then direct. Um, and so this is usually like a two-part process, right? So what you do is you first um, 
do what's known as optioning that original source material. Um, and so you approach that person or that person's publisher um, and let them know that you're interested, you know, in turning it into a film. And you give them a certain amount of money, which essentially buys you time to develop their story or adapt that story into your own. So um, it's usually a year, um, but I actually just optioned the novella for two years. And the, per the price for optioning is usually 10% of the total purchase price, which is part two of that whole process, right? So let's say, for instance, I option my friend's novella for $200, right? So right off the bat, I'm giving my friend $200. That's giving me one or two years in which nobody else can go to him and say, hey, I want to turn your novella into a movie too, right? That le legally allows me to be the only person that can be working on that story for that particular period of time. If it reaches a point at the end of that one or two years where it's become a, an actual viable project that's ready to go in pr into pre-production, then I will additionally give him the rest of that money that I owe him, which is the purchase price, right? So if it's 10%, that makes it, what, $2,000? Thank you, I'm really bad at math. <laughs> so at the end of the optioning period, I will owe him the remainder of that, of that money. And then it's mine. Then I have the legal rights to be able to turn his story into my film. Did I forget any uh, any of the well, the, fa the facts or the details? Questions until the yeah, we'll have a whole time period for that. You did perfect. I'm just gonna yeah. You gave me you gave me the framework. Okay, so here so how a typical because I've experienced this many times. I've optioned six screenplay. I've never sold a screenplay. I've optioned six. So how it works is. Um, most of the time, somebody's not just going to buy a script. They're not going to be like, this is amazing. I'm going to buy it. Instead, what they go is, I think I can get people to make to give me money to make this. I don't have any money right now to make this movie. But if you give me permission, then I will go try to find money to make your movie. And until I find that money, I can't buy your script from you. I can essentially rent it. So what an option agreement is, it's almost like renting a house and then you're giving it to a production company and they're going to say, well, I'll paint the walls, I'll get this person to live in it um, as long as when the period is over, the six months that I'm renting your script, when I give it back to you, it comes back exactly how it was, you still own it. But in the meantime, I can fiddle with it, I can do whatever I want, and uh, if people give me money to make it, I'll give you money for your script. So, for instance, uh, we optioned Tombstone. I'll just hop on that one. We optioned that one for six months. And in the past, in Hollywood history, you could option. I mean, when you were at your height, I'm sure option agreements were in 10,000. Bigger, way bigger numbers. That is unheard of now. In Hollywood, unless you are a power player, I mean, most people won't even give you 
more than one dollar. It's the dollar option is the new thing now. Like just because it's got to be a legal document, it has to some sort of transaction has to take place. So they'll say, "Would you be willing to give a dollar option?" And what that is is I'm saying for a dollar, I will give you permission to no. I can't try to get anyone else on the planet to buy this from me for the next six months. Just you. Um, but years ago, it used to be like you could option a screenplay for like $10,000. But the positives of an option agreement is they do uh, floor and ceiling deals. So what it is is we're saying we're going to try to make your uh, movie for $3 million. If we get $3 million to make a movie, you will make a floor of $100,000 as the script purchase and a ceiling of $150,000. So most option agreements have a floor and a ceiling number. You'll get at bare minimum $100,000 if we get the money. And, uh, you know, or you could get up to $150,000 plus residuals and all that fun stuff. So these can go on and on. For instance, we had a project where we optioned it. The option ran out, but they were still excited. They were still trying to get people involved. And they optioned it again. And they optioned it again. And we had like an 18 months with the same production company who are basically bringing it to people with money and saying, I've got this awesome script. I want to get $7 million to make it. Will you give me $7 million? And they say, no. And then there's all these other things where they're like, I got Brad Pitt to sign an agreement that says he's going to star in this script. Will you give us money? They're like, oh, hell yeah, I'll give you money. So that basically, scripts become a part of a package. And then they attach talent. They attach actors. They attach directors. And they don't have a single dime. But they've got all these people who are talented, who have you know power, um, who say they're willing to do it if somebody gives us all money. So that's, that's basically, did I do a decent job explaining that process? It's, yeah, I, I like to think of it as a house. I've got, I've got this script that is a house. I'm going to rent it to somebody. They're going to paint the walls. They're going to change the way it looks. Um, and in six months, as long as they paint those walls back white and put everything in the back of the walls and give it to me, if they don't sell it, it's back to me. Yeah. Okay, this next question, <clears throat> I'm only going to use half of it. Um, <clears throat> the most important part of it is, is it necessary to obtain a copyright of your script? Yes, you should absolutely do that. It's so important that you protect your work, although it's also important to know that you can't copyright an idea. So your idea needs to be in some written form. And you can register synopses, you can register treatments, you can register whole scripts. It has to be written down and then submitted to the guild. I ran into an issue in grad school where I had started to work on an adaptation of a short story that I didn't option. And then behind my back, two of my friends from grad school went and made that film without me. And I was so angry because it wasn't a nice thing to do. But I initially should have registered, I should have optioned and then registered my script version of that short story and that would have legally protected me. Um, and I didn't do that. So I learned the hard way that the minute I have an idea down on paper or the minute that I have legal rights to somebody else's story, 
um, I go right ahead and I register it with the guild. And it's like a very easy online submission where you just upload the PDF version of your script or whatever piece of writing you have. And it's like 30 or $35. There's right. like, for life, yeah. There's also copyright.gov, which yeah. registers it with the U.S. Copyright Office, which I think offers even greater protection, right? Well, let me, That's what I thought. Let me I'll clarify that for you. Um, copyright is, uh, you can also do online for, I think, 40 bucks. Um, Dina's absolutely correct. You can't copyright ideas. My personal approach to it is that um, I don't bother copywriting anything until I have a fairly decent draft because I don't want to keep submitting yes. silly documents to the Library of Congress. Okay. But the, the, the important thing uh, about this is that copyright, that is the U.S. Copyright Office, is a legal <coughs> and binding protection for intellectual uh, property. The Writers Guild of America has a thing where you can register your script there in a similar way. You can pay them some money and they put it into um, presumably a giant warehouse like in Raiders of the Lost Ark and it's never seen again but it's there. But the thing is the Writers Guild registration is useful but it's redundant to a copyright. I personally don't bother with Writer Guild registrations because they don't actually do anything. I just copyright the material. Um, maybe there's good reasons to use the Writer's Guild registration system if, uh, I'm just trying to think what that reason would be. I never could figure out why it was, why anybody would, but the Writer's Guild you know, does provide that service. I've actually submitted to some screenwriting contests and labs, which um, require you to have a WGA registration number before uh, they'll even allow you to submit your script. So right. that would be one reason. That would be one it. reason. And uh, and so and also almost similar similar to what you're. Um, it's fast. So the copyright office, the the official Library of Congress, is not fast. It sometimes takes seven, eight months to get something on record that you actually say, "Here's the copyright number." Whereas the WGA, it's instantaneous. You get an email immediately. And so there are situations where um, I've had an opportunity to send someone a script, and I haven't had it copyrighted yet. And they're like, "I won't read it." unless it's been copyrighted with the WGA. So I'll literally take five minutes, pay $35, and have a WGA registration number, and then send them the script. Right, but just watch the language, because WGA does not copyright anything. Right. There's copyright, and there's WGA registration. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but there's just been people who wouldn't even read the script unless, uh, like she said, unless, unless you had a WGA number to put on the title page. Right. Right. Well, the thing is, in legal terms, as soon as you write something, it's already copywritten. You know, you, but the problem is you can't prove the date or the ownership unless you copyright it. But you know, if I write a script and I never copyright it, it doesn't mean someone else can take it from me because it's you know it's it's by common law copyrighted. It's my property. But in order to be able to, in the rare, the incredibly rare situation 
that there's a problem, somebody else claims that you stole their script or something like that, that's when the copyright or the registration are extremely effective in, uh, in determining the, any validity of such a, a claim. I've had it happen before. I've had it happen before. Uh, somebody, some woman came out of the woodwork when we went into production on this film and said, they stole my idea. And uh, she, it was a completely baseless and ridiculous claim, but we shut her down super fast by pulling out the, by pulling out the Writers Guild registration. It could have been the copyright, but that was handy at the moment. And, and her lawyer went, oh, never mind. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you got anything to add, Joe? Okay, so the next question is, now we spoke a little bit about this earlier. Several of you mentioned agents, managers, and entertainment attorneys. Um, do you need them all? Do you need one? And how do you find one? So I will take a question. Um, no to the agent, no to the manager, but yes to the attorney. Um, the first thing uh, I did for my very first documentary was when I set up my production company, I had to start an LLC and that required an attorney. And we have a wonderful resource in our area called Maryland Lawyers for the Arts. God bless them, God bless them or dog bless them, however you. Yes. Um, so that's what I did. And they helped me set up my production company. And um, the next time I needed an attorney was uh, for my next film, which is my current film, uh, where I exercised fair use a lot. I, I used It's largely made up of uh, interviews and film clips. So I needed someone to sort of keep me honest and keep me from getting you know, sued for using clips from classic films. And uh, a local... Um, well-known director Ramona Diaz recommended her lawyer to me. This seemed the job a little bit higher up than Maryland Lawyers for the Arts could uh, could do for me. Um, but basically, I ran the entire film by uh, a lawyer in L.A. Uh, and we went back and forth as to whether or not I, I had the criteria for fair use. Um, and there was a lot of back and forth. There was some clips that we had to take out. We just couldn't justify. Uh, there were a few clips that we won the argument. And there were a bunch of clips where she was like, yep, you're, you're doing it right. So, um, yeah, lawyers are, are very necessary, unfortunately. Yes. I'll just add quickly that um, I've brought on an entertainment attorney for the past couple of projects that I've worked on because they're incredibly helpful in reading contracts or helping you write contracts, right? So my attorney has helped me figure out all the optioning agreements that I've needed. Um, he has also reviewed um, granting contracts, right, which sometimes have some tricky and, and hidden language and clauses that if you're not a trained lawyer, you don't always understand like the legalese of the terms and, and of the contracts, but yeah, basically. Um, and so he was incredibly helpful in pointing like problematic areas of the contract out to me and, and like telling me what to ask of the granting entity um, and how to advocate for myself in terms of making changes to the contract that actually benefited me and didn't necessarily benefit the organization. 
Uh, yeah, I've had entertainment attorneys help us with uh, distribution issues, which is a whole other thing for our film distribution. Um, uh, so I'd say I'm, I'm with, I support that uh, attorney statement. Um, in my experience, as I shared earlier, um, my agent didn't help me whatsoever. And um, I have a lot of friends who have the same experience where they help when you get to it, like David said, they help when you get to the negotiating. Yes, they help when you get to the negotiating side, which is like the last step, but everything else is on you, is the work. You have to do the work to find the either the actor or director or producer who is interested in helping you bring this to life and purchasing the script. Then the agent helps. Um, you know, there's always exceptions to that. and um, But yeah, that's my experience. Um, the key thing about the agent manager lawyer thing is agents and managers are operate under criteria that are legal criteria. Agents, for example, can't take more than 10%. They also can't be involved in producing the film, like if you sell a script right through an agent, that agent can't be involved as a producer, can't be involved in any other way, uh, and the maximum they can take is 10%. This is dictated by law. Managers don't operate under any such rules. Managers can take any percentage they can convince you to pay them. Uh, you know, it's a different thing altogether. Managers, agents don't um, hold your hand and, and mentor you. Uh, managers do. That's kind of what they're supposed to do. Uh, agents will have a larger client pool than a manager. Um, Managers can attach themselves to a project as a producer, although the good ones will not do that. Uh, it's kind of uh, etiquette that they should not do that. But anything you can imagine can happen. Um, the entertainment lawyer thing is really good because the entertainment lawyers are kind of a backdoor to everything. If you have a reason, if you're, if you're interacting with an entertainment attorney of some kind, it turns out they know a bunch of managers, and they know a bunch of agents, and they know a bunch of production companies. I've had situations where I worked with the entertainment lawyer to make submissions, the job of an agent or the job of a manager, just because we had worked on something before. But entertainment lawyers are a great sort of backdoor, you know, if you need them for something, you know, uh, and you maybe pay them to do something for you, then you can ask them, you know, hey, I have this other script or this other project or this other property. Do you know anybody that might be a good manager for me in this? Or are you doing And they, they inevitably know a ton of people. So that I do believe in the entertainment lawyer thing. Um, and the last thing I will say is that managers are typically easy to, easier to get to Right, and the thing is, you have to remember too, is that everybody starts out somewhere. So there's going to be well, there's there's individual managers, right, that just are themselves. But there's also management companies that have a whole, you know, uh, uh, slate of managers that handle different kinds of, you know, literary talent, actors, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And some of those are like, you know, become very sort of elite and impossible to get into. But for every beginning writer. There's a beginning manager. So beginning writers often end up working with beginning managers because they need each other. 
right? So every year that goes by, some manager has to die, and some new manager has to, some other person has to become a manager. And you can find those people, you know, you can find them, and you can look them up on IMDb. And if they have a ton of, uh, you know, high-profile clients, they might not be for you yet. But if they seem like they're more boutique, is the euphemism they use. <laughs> Um, you know, it's like the uh, office in Better Call Saul. It's in the back of the nail yeah. salon. But that's okay. You know, that's okay. They can work good, too. Okay, so the next question. I know you guys said you don't technically always have to have an agent, but if you're looking for one, should you aim for big agencies, packing agencies, boutique, boutique agencies, or small agencies? Then you want to go big. Um, packaging agents, boutique, that's what it is. Yeah, I think that people starting out try to hook up with people who are a little more hungry, right? Motivated. Um, a uh, sole proprietor manager, you know, or a small, what they call boutique you know, uh, management company. Um, and most people will say, if you're going to do any of that, work with the lawyer or the manager first. You know, agents come after you have success, not so much before. Although anything's possible. you have anything to add, Dina? No, because I haven't one-on-one -on -one worked with an agent, but I, I'll just reinforce what David said about if you're as an, you know, a beginner writer, also finding that person in the agency who is like you, right? Who is at that same level. You're trying to work your way up as a writer. They're trying to work their way up as an agent. And then you're helping one another. You're supporting one another's careers as you move up through the ranks. Okay, well, the next question um, also pertains to looking for somebody that can help you. How do you find a director who directs stories like yours? IMDb. <laughs> uh, no, but really, I mean, it's about reading other scripts and watching other films that are, I think David said this earlier, of the same tone and genre. And because I direct my own work, what I've had to do is I've had to find producers um, who have worked on projects of similar tone and genre. So, for instance, um, my last short film that I made as part of the, the Saul Zantz Fund, um, I needed to get a producer on board. And so I just started looking around and I started watching films and I had seen a film at um, South by Southwest called Little Sister um, and had discovered that I knew a bunch of people who had worked on the film and that they had a female producer because I'm always w interested in working with other women in the film industry if and when I can. Um, yeah, Melody Sisk, um, who I ended up reaching out to um, and luckily she was able to come on board to my project and finding that right producer really helped to open doors because she had contacts 
to um, other actors and actresses that I didn't have um, contact and access to. She had access to film festivals and whatnot. So, you know, the same the same holds true for finding the right kind of director for your project. I would say a producer is just as important, if not more so. Thank you, Dina. Anybody else have anything to say on that? We're on the question about the finding a director. Yeah, so I agree with you. The producer is is the uh, smarter person to seek out because um, they're more accessible, essentially. I mean, uh, you're going to have a lot less people uh, coming right to the producer than you are coming right to the director. And it's a lot easier, I feel, to uh, get one-on-one -on -one communication with a producer than it is with a, with a director, essentially. Um, and oftentimes, you have a producer who exclusively works with a director. So it's like if you communicate with the producer, ultimately, if they like you and they're interested, they're going to talk to the director that you're interested in anyway. Thank you. Anybody have anything else to say before we move to the next question? All right. So I know somebody mentioned writing for video games earlier. Is writing for webisodes and video games profitable? Oh, yeah, I mentioned that. I think um, the video game industry is a larger industry than all the film and television combined. Writers from the sort of traditional Hollywood side are getting employment in the video game industry. I don't know much about the video game industry, but uh, you know those are corporate entities, and you go there to get a job. If you have movie credits, they might be interested. You know, as a writer, they may be interested in you developing the stories that surround these games now. Um, so the answer to that is yeah, but I don't know much about you know. Um, I don't think that you can write spec video games as a script and get somebody to buy them. It's in-house. You're, you're an employee of the video game company. You're in the department that helps develop the stories around the games. Uh, so that's a way to get work. Um, but obviously, they're going to hire people that have shown uh, some level of skill in uh, creating those kinds of stories. Um, Webisodic... Uh, is a great format. I think it's still, you know, being figured out. Some, not many people. I don't know. Has anybody made money on webisodes yet? Um, I I know I have a friend in New York. Um, his name is Stavros. I can't pronounce his last name. I'll I'll, I'll just butcher it. Um, he's been in, he's been in, <laughs> yeah, that's appropriate for what you say. He's been in a few of our films. He is a comedian and he lives in New York and he writes for a YouTube channel full time. That's his job. That's what he's paid to do. So now the revenue stream or revenue uh, sharing percentage has YouTube has completely changed and it continues to change just like Amazon it continues to change. It, it, it's like dropped by like 45% in the last few years. Yeah, it's a grocery um, store now. Isn't yeah, it? exactly. But my point is that I, there are people who make a living even just writing comedy bits for a YouTube channel. So it's definitely possible. Yeah. And as far as I know from the, from the video game side, I'm pretty sure I don't have experience with this, but I've known a few people who do it um, enough to have heard about it. I'm pretty sure it's more, more like an animated feature. And how an animated feature is, is uh, 
there's kind of the script is always in flux based on the artists. And so the artists are coming. You have a director who's sort of like the head storyteller who decides whether these moments are really entertaining or not. And you have a bunch of uh, video game animators who are creating the game along with them and pitching them new new worlds, new story elements. And uh, But ultimately, it's not somebody's script that gets picked up that they decide they're going to make a game out of. So, i tell you one strong thing about web. I have a number of students who have taken it upon themselves to write and shoot to produce short episodes, you know, for, for, uh, for themselves to release on the Internet to hope to build an audience, you know, and some of those have been successful. There's been more than one TV series that got picked up because it it worked as a, a webisode that somebody did, you know, on their own DIY. Yeah. So if not directly, like if you find those gigs writing for a YouTube channel, it sounds like good work if you can get it. Indirectly, the webisode is a very useful tool. You can make bite-sized films that are related in a serial way and, uh, you know, I've had um, at least five different student teams that have carried that to a pretty impressive wow. extreme, you know, doing 10, 20 episodes or something and that wow. kind of thing and posting it, trying to get some juice out yeah. of it. Yeah. That's great. I also just wanted to briefly mention blogging and podcasts as an avenue um, towards, like, maybe bigger, more traditional money-making media. Um, so recently you have Issa Rae's Insecure on HBO, which started out as her blog. You have Broad City, um, which is, is that Comedy Central? IFC? Comedy yeah. Central, which started yeah. out as a blog. Um, you have the This American Life podcast, which was turned into a Showtime documentary series for a couple of seasons. You have another podcast named Lore, which I know mm -hmm. now is, has been turned into episodic for Amazon. So those are two other sort of semi-related avenues point. that you could take yeah. now. Those mm -hmm. are all ways in that didn't exist a few years ago. Right. Thank you. That was all very helpful. Is there anything, last thing on that question? Because we're up to the last question now. All right. So. I, do, I, I just want to, you know, there, there's a lot of people who have made careers out of putting their short on their YouTube channel. So uh, what I was thinking about while we were talking is Neil Blomkamp, District 9, Elysium. Um, his District 9 was a, like a four-minute short on YouTube that Peter Jackson saw and was like, wow, this is crazy. I got to give this guy money. Um, which is awesome. And there was a movie called Mama that um, Guillermo del Toro saw that short on YouTube and then gave that guy um, the power and, and, you know, and resources to make a feature-length version of Mama. So um, it's a horror movie. I should know it. Shame on me, but I, yeah. yeah I thought you <laughs> we'll, we'll have time for questions in just a few minutes. We have the last question now. So um, since studios or large independent production companies are very inaccessible to anybody without good representation, what type of small independent production companies are best? Art houses, exploitation, or cable and television? Let 
the thing I would say about that is is um, the same answer we had before. I would I would if I was uh, I would go on IMDb IMDb Pro and I would look at films, find films that are in my genre. And also, by the way, sort of budget range. You can kind of tell if a movie is made for a smaller budget or if it has movie stars in it, it's probably made for a huge budget. You know, and who's making those films? What, what, you can, what production company was involved in making these films I found that are kind of like mine? And that's the ones I would go after. Uh, you know, that's just a little bit of detective work. You know, all the information sitting there, you know, you got to look it up and figure out who are the people that are making these films that uh, are somewhat like my idea, my story, the thing I'm working on, you know, that could be done for a more modest budget or whatever, and go after them, send them the letters, send them the emails, hang out on their doorstep, whatever it takes, you know, uh, would be the, my answer to that. You know, obviously, I brought it. I brought it. Like if you take, for example, you can take one from Matt's films. You know, he had to do those, uh, Putty Hill, and, you know, and that one distributor uh, of his, uh, Putty Hill was, I forget the name of it, something Guild, was a distributor. Cinema, Cinema Guild. Cinema Guild, right. So then you can look up Cinema Guild, you know, as a company, and find out everything they do, you know, which is mostly documentaries, but they, I know they took, I know they distributed that film. And, and other choices, you know, other similar kinds of companies that might, you know, deal in uh, not only distribution, but also, you know, production and go after them. But it's really about your, uh, your proactive, you know, uh, actions to figure out who these people are, who's making these movies, you know, what company produced it, and then going to meet those people. So this is sort of an offshoot of this question, but I think it's relevant. Because um, since you've been talking about IMDb Pro, I thought I'd just jump on with all the websites I think you could use that could help you. Yeah. Um, okay, and I have experience with every single one of these, so I can have I can tell you right now, I've, I've gotten option agreements and various other uh, opportunities from uh, multiple of these. Um, so IMDb Pro is $30 a month, or it's uh, if you do it annually, I believe it's $25. Um, and as David said extensively, it is a great resource for uh, you know trying to find somebody who might be interested in your work. Um, the second one is a website called The Tracking Board. Are you guys familiar with The Tracking Board? Um, the Tracking Board is essentially like the daily variety, but for the average everyday user. Um, variety comes out every day in Hollywood, or maybe it's not every day now. Um, and it basically is like, what's going on in Hollywood yesterday? You know, who bought this? What transactions happened? But it's also job listings, and not just job listings for like PAs and things like that. It's, I am uh, looking for a writer to do this specific thing, and you might be the writer who has that specific skill set and experience. And those uh, ads for jobs are on there. It's sort of like a Craigslist film section, but it's directly uh, created by people in the film industry. It's not just uh, you know somebody who's like, I need somebody to write a script for me who's never done this before. 
Um, so the tracking board is also very cheap. It's like, uh, I think it's like mm, maybe $75 for a year. Um, and, that, and it's every day. Um, and there's tons of resources like uh, they do a mid, mid-year report where uh, they have a, like a 300-page book breakdown of every single script that's been uh, optioned and sold in Hollywood. Yeah, that's that's next. So, uh, yeah, so the tracking board is a huge resource. And for instance, like, let's say you see a movie in the movies, and you're and you're like, I saw that yesterday. I want to read it today. In the past, that was very difficult to do. The tracking board has a huge database of current scripts, and you can often find a TV episode that was just on TV like yesterday. You can go to the tracking board's database, and if you remember, you can get that script. Um, so that's a huge resource. Um, there's a site called, like he said, the Blacklist. There's been like, ooh, I want to say like, it's probably like 40 at this point scripts that have uh, been made out of the Blacklist, um, and several Oscar winners that they had no these these writers had no uh, connections to Hollywood. But what you do is uh, it's I, it's pay to play, which this is a whole other story. This pay to play system, I hate it, but Right now, that's the uh, name of the game. And when I say pay to play, you say, okay, I have a script. I'll pay $60 to put my script on blacklist for three months. And then in those three months, it's a peer review site. So you just have people who are just like you, and they read your script, and they say, this is awesome. And when people give it good reviews, it goes just like, a, just like likes in an algorithm. It goes up the list, and what you end up having is producers, directors, agents, actors read your script, and they go, oh, damn. Um, and they get really excited, and it also ultimately leads to careers. So the blacklist is a great resource, but it's pay-to-play. Inktip is another resource. I don't know if you guys have used Inktip before, have you? Um, I've optioned two scripts off of Inktip. So Inktip basically is not peer review at all, but you have you pay $30 and um, your script is up there for three months. I think you can do six months for $60. You know, you, there's, there's pay scales, but you put your script up there and it has a list just like you would get um, of uh, coverage parameters, even greater though. It's like, does it have a female lead? Does it have, it's very specific so that if a, and then what happens is your script goes into a database and you give them your synopsis and your log line and your bio. And uh, there's about 50,000 production companies who read this all the day. And once you, what's cool is when you put your script on Intip, you can live see who's reading it. So, and then there's a rule that if they, if they read the log line, you can't contact them. If they read the synopsis, you can't contact them. But if they read the log line, the synopsis, and the script, you get the production company's contact information. And even if they pass and don't even contact you, you can contact them and get feedback and say, hey, I saw you read my script, uh, and, but you didn't. Is just curious uh, what you thought of it. Um, and I've done that, and I've got feedback from that. And so it's very, it's very, it's, it's not that expensive, and there are people looking at it. I mean, you'll go and you'll see it. You'll be like, oh, my God, like five people looked at this log line. No one read the synopsis. Maybe I got to tweak that log line a little, you know. So um, I've, I've optioned multiple scripts off of Inktip, and it's just another tool. Um, there's a new one called Coverfly. Have you guys heard of Coverfly? Um, have you heard of Coverfly? Okay, so um, 
cover fly. So there's this whole other system that we haven't talked about, which is the contests. And they, uh, and they, you know, a lot of them are predatory on writers, starving artists. There's, a, there's hundreds of contests out there, but really there's only a handful of ones that mean anything to the people who can get your script into the hands of someone who can make it. Uh, Coverfly. So Coverfly is owned by, and this is all public knowledge, um, it's out there if you look at Coverfly is owned by Red Ampersand, and just like everything, it's like these conglomerates. Uh, Red Ampersand owns ScreenCraft, The Script Lab, uh, We Screenplay. They, Red, this company called Red Ampersand basically owns like four of the most uh, popular screenwriting resources out there and the contests. So um, Coverfly, you pay for every time you enter one of these contests, and they have relationships with 50 other contests too, you basically have kind of like a score sheet for your script. And so instead of, you can basically see all the reviews you've gotten for every contest in this one like sheet. And so let's say a producer is interested in your script. You can be like, well, I submitted it to all these contests and look at all of the various things that I got, the grades that I got. It's sort of like a... Um, accountability and uh, just uh, uh, validity that your script is worth it, you know, worth it for the producer to spend their time on. So um, Coverfly is a very new thing. It's only a few months old. Um, and so look into that too. Yeah, you bring up one really important point, which uh, I don't, don't want to forget to say. So the new thing are these websites. You know, they kind of take the place of, uh, you can sort of, do an end run around agents and managers and all that. How effective they are? Well, they've been maturing over the last 10, 20 years, and some of them, I think, are pretty good. Blacklist, yeah, Coverfly, Inktip, these are worth checking out. It's a way, and it kind of makes sense, you know, especially I think like the peer review one makes a lot of sense. Um, it's something you can do sort of right now but I want to say, over the last 20 years, a secondary industry has been created. It's an industry that sells stuff to people who are screenwriters or people who are aspiring screenwriters. And they'll sell you all kinds of stuff now. There's, there's more screenwriting books than there are snowflakes, I think, uh, in a blizzard now. And they all have something good to say, but, you know... You can only read so many books, I think, before it turns your brain to mush. Um, it's like reading books about basketball. It doesn't make you play basketball any better. You have and to. Brett does have several, though. Yeah, not a lot, especially at Central, but all the brain. Yeah. Show. Oh, and if you haven't read any screenwriting, but definitely read. It's just a lot of. But it, you know, if you've already read forty of them, you know, you can probably slow down. But the the thing I really want to talk about is, and you mentioned the word sort of predatory. Or there, there are a lot of stuff people will try to sell you, and you really don't need any of it. I personally have never tried story crafting software before. I guess maybe I'm just a Luddite in that area. Well, I don't want to go there. <laughs> I don't believe it can work. But, um, you know, books, DVDs, seminars, there's an endless list of things that you can buy, you know. But all of those, in my view... Those things are mostly distractions from what you ought to be doing, which is sitting in a room by yourself writing. Um, there are also places I call coverage mills. And these are people who 
send your script in, we'll give you professional coverage, right? Somebody will read it who knows what they're doing, and they'll write a little report, and they'll send it back to you, right? And then you'll have some good feedback on your script, and some of them are good. But, you know, think about it. You know, if they say, we'll do script coverage for $40, and it takes a minimum of three hours to read something, digest it, and write something meaningful about it, are you entrusting your script to somebody that's getting paid $11 an hour? I don't know. You know, you have to think about that, and you have to do a little homework to see if, you know, how scammy is this? Is it, is it really just, there are whole film festivals that are set up to make profit. And many film festivals have a screenwriting component now, and they make profit through submission fees. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like you were pointing out, very few of them are actually meaningful. But there are meaningful ones. There are good ones. That you, you know, the, uh, our local contest is good. Uh, our, you know, the, um, you know, the Austin one, um, you know, certainly the Nichols and some of these big prizes. But you can kind of scope out contests where you can submit screenplays, right? Which is always helpful. You put that in a query letter. We won the, this yeah. contest. But beware, buyer beware of, you know, submit your screenplay submission fee, $50. We'll get back to you. You know, some of those are just money-making routines, you know. And what good are they going to do you? Uh, so that's something also to do do your homework on because there's a lot of peddling of um, yeah. various stuff out there. Yeah, I was just going to add that I almost never submit my scripts to contests because of the predatory nature of many of them. Um, but I do want to plug applying to labs and residencies again yes. because that's where you truly make the legitimate and genuine connections with people where you'll meet mentors, you'll meet peers, and you'll get useful feedback. You still may have to pay a submission fee, yeah. but, um, you're but you're getting better. something legitimate and genuine from it. Does anyone have anything, um, last words to say before we go to the Q&A announcements? Okay, so i just like to mention that I'm from the Humanities Department at the Central Library location downtown on Cathedral Street. We have several books on screenwriting, write, creative writing in general, and all other types. Um, we have literature and other things dealing with writing, grammar, all that stuff. Um, we also have a database called Gale Courses, and you actually can, instead of film school, as they said, you don't need to go, um, they have actual instructors who are professors, and they teach courses that you register for in screenwriting and other types of writing. So I definitely check out our databases page, go to pick G, the letter G, and then go to Gale Courses. It has several different um, classes for all sorts of things, business and other things as well. So it might help you with the business side of marketing and things too. Um, so that's basically all I have to say. What we're going to do now is we're going to go to Q&A. So now it's time for if any of you have specific questions. You can ask. Um, this is going to be a podcast, so if you missed the part where it was the panelists talking about the questions that I had posed to them, you can go on our website, Google Play, and the Apple Store to get the podcast. Um, but now, any questions you have, you can ask panelists for about the next 15 to 20 minutes. After Then afterward, if you have any cards or anything, you can talk to the panelists, pass out your cards or whatever. Robertson, are you doing one of these on 
Um, no, not writing music. Um, not at the moment. I don't focus on that department. Um, that would be fine arts. Um, that's not in the humanities department. But um, they do a lot of different programming for um, the fine arts department. So you might want to check out our compass and check out the events page, see what they have going on. Has streaming and the internet changed the industry? I mean, it's a loaded question. Um, it used to be, for instance, and it's, it could just continues to change. It used to be that who a lot of these places didn't make their own material, like Netflix didn't make their own shows. I mean, I I've submitted films to Hulu before they ever made their own shows, and now Hulu makes like six or seven shows. And uh, uh, yeah, it's changed, and there's more opportunity because there's more content being made than ever before, and that's on YouTube Red. I mean, every single one of the streaming platforms is now making their own material. So I would say yes. Uh, yeah. Does that answer your question, Will? Yes. Yeah, I mean, also with uh, the nerds that are making films on their own, like independently produced films, DIYs, there's a, you know, the, the old uh, uh, boundary was you could make a film, but how would you get anybody to see it? You can't distribute it. Yeah. It was a firewall. Distributors controlled that. But now uh, there is, you know, it doesn't mean it's so hard to get clicks unless you have you know, marketing, but you know, you can use streaming services for stuff that you've produced, and that's a big difference. And even this, even this whole thing you were talking about of these sites, uh, Blacklist, Inktip, you know, that is a, you know, that's kind of the future. I know in many ways, I think. I think so. Yeah, maybe we can put agents out of business. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to re reinforce that notion of there being more avenues to get your work out into the world. And in case I don't get to mention this, um, I also just want to say that our industry has a huge issue with inclusivity and diversity right now. And where many voices aren't being heard because the gatekeepers are essentially old white men. Old white men run Hollywood. Um, and so by having these avenues where you don't necessarily need to pass through a bunch of gatekeepers um, who are very much about supporting people who are similar to them or have similar voices to them, um, this helps to get other people's voices and stories out into the world too. just asking what are some of the websites for um, local grant money for funding of a project yeah so I would look at I believe I think it's zantsfund.com z-a-e-n-t-z um, and this is a local grant that's been running for a couple of years now and they have various granting cycles throughout their fiscal year um, but it's particularly for Baltimore based media makers and um, they are open to a variety of different types of projects, short projects, uh, feature length screenplays, augmented reality, virtual reality, documentary, et cetera. Yeah. 
There's a. It's Z A E N T Z. There's another local organization called Research Associates Foundation. Um, I've benefited from one of their grants. Um, they tend toward uh, topics and projects that are more social justice oriented. So I don't know that you go to them with like a narrative type film. But if you wanted to make a documentary and it had any type of social justice angle, uh, Research Associates Foundation would be a place that could help you out. Um, th these also, this isn't a direct source of funding, but there are various filmmaking groups in the city as well. So I run the Baltimore Women's Media Alliance, which used to be Baltimore Film Fatales. We're essentially the same group with a new name. Um, and we're, we're a group that supports um, women filmmakers in the area or female identifying filmmakers. There's also the Baltimore Filmmakers Collective, which is a group run by Eric Cotton, um, and that's a group that's that's open to any filmmaker from the area. Um, so I would think about joining. Um, they do uh, they they work on projects together, right? So someone will have a script, and then everyone gets together um, and and produces and films something. Um, there's also an educational component to it where they hold workshops. Oh, they do a pitch contest. Remember, we were talking about practicing your pitching. Yes. So you can go and pitch a story idea, and they they offer a cash cash prize. I think Chris didn't Chris, Chris win. Got yeah, it. yeah. Jimmy's partner won second place in one of one of the yeah. uh, pitch contests. They did it. Yeah, they had their first one associated with the Maryland Film Festival this past spring, mm -hmm. and then they did a second one more recently. So getting hooked up. And being and, and so this is also a networking thing too, right? Exactly. Starting to meet the other filmmakers from the area who all have a common goal. Yeah, Eric Cotton is a is a great resource. Need to know Eric. Does anybody else have a question? Uh, how has networking changed in light of the new media explosion? Okay, well, I have an example. So Jimmy and I have been Facebook friends for like at least two years, if not more, but we had never met in person. Until today. Right, until today. <laughs> so, Maybe so, Joe, too. Joe and I, I, can't, I feel like I met you before. I think we have. Yeah. Yeah, so, we, so you're able to connect with people without necessarily needing to meet with them in person, but the in-person component is yeah. so important, exactly. so incredibly important. But uh, um, I'll say, even just beyond, uh, you got, do you guys know Brian Dragonuk, uh, his network? Um, Dragonuk, look up Dragonuk. Uh, it's spelled D-R-A-G-O-N-U-K. And it's a huge database for basically film jobs and projects that are going on locally that are like, you know, they have everything. They have union projects. They have non-union projects. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's free to join. I can't remember if it's changed into a membership-based. Um, but it's a huge resource, and it's all uh, Maryland, D.C., Virginia-based. Um, and, uh, I mean, we have made all of our films based on, uh, like, meeting actors, seeing somebody in a play somewhere, you know, in Baltimore. Like, oh, my God. I mean, Chris and I have... 
seen an actor's performance at a random, uh, whether it's a play or something, and written a role in a future film for them just based on going and meeting them, you know, and coming and seeing a play. Just, yeah, so things like that. Okay, I think this works now. Thank you, though. Um, for people who have never written a screenplay or any type of script, how would you, or what would you do to recommend, you know, any type of book for formatting? You know, what basics do they need to learn about how to properly write a screenplay? So I, I usually have my students start with three-act structure, which is like basic, kind of formulaic, dramatic narrative structure, right? And you have these kind of classic screenwriting books like Sid Field's screenplay. I would probably start there. Um, but like David said, there are a hundred books out there and they all kind of say the same thing in a different way. Um, I also find like certain writers to be more arrogant than others. Uh, but, but I think you, you would maybe want to start with a book. And there are also um, various free um, software formatting programs online. So my students also start with Celtics, C-E-L-T-X dot com. And you can set up a free um, online profile there and they allow you to have like three working scripts at a time before they ask you to pay more <laughs> so there are various tiers of being able to use the software um, but that's where you can learn and I think David you said that you're kind of anti the anti those formatting programs you type do you oh, take your scripts and word oh ooh, yeah. yeah no I would say like the most. yeah auto formatting is very very helpful oh, so um, so yeah, I would start with a book. I would learn three act structure, right? Cause that, that's, those are the rules. Um, and you don't want to break the rules until you have the foundation down, um, and the free formatting software. I just want to add to that because it's, I think, uh, very important, you know, uh, because of the screenwriting contest, it's one example, the one that we do, the Baltimore screenwriters competition, um, is a good example of it. Screenwriting requires a very specific format that is developed over the last 80, 90 years. And it's very functional and it's very specific. And if you are submitting scripts to anybody, they have to be in format or that reader, that person that's gonna read your script will automatically be turned off they expect, you know, even you can write a brilliant screenplay with Sharpies on napkins, right? But it's very hard to get anybody to read it that way. Presentation counts. So if you get to a screenplay to a point where you think it's finished, make damn sure that it's in proper format and also all the other stuff, you know, just spelling and grammar and, you know, punctuation People that have to read scripts all the time will form, even if they're unfair, they will form opinions quite quickly on the pay, on the first page of the script. Format is format. Storytelling is a mystery. If Hollywood could throw money at the problem and have a brilliant story for every movie, they would never 
have flops, but they have flops all the time. You know, so the creative part is you're just as capable of it as me or anybody else, right? But one thing, and you can't really control that, but you can control the mechanical part, which is format. Um, the best book out there just for format, is, in my view anyway, is Christopher Riley's book, The Hollywood Standard. It doesn't cost very much, and it shows you how to do format. When we do these contests, like the Baltimore Screenwriters Competition, and scripts come in that aren't in format, you know, it's a very palpable, you know, sort of problem. The writer didn't take some time to figure out that a script has to look a certain way. And so it turns off readers right away, you know. Uh, and so far in my travels, I have not seen a great screenplay that just happened to be written completely out of format. Right. The software they're talking about helps because it has all these specific margins and everything. The software makes it much simpler to actually type it in format, but it doesn't do, you know, the writer's still doing all the work, trust me, but you don't have to fool with the mechanical part of it. So there's a lot of free ones out there now. Celtex has a free version. I don't know, several others do. Students keep coming up with free ones every day, even though the, the software that most people use in the industry is called Final Draft. You can, well, students, they must yeah, have... Well, they also have 18 weeks free. We use that all the time. Uh, you have to pay for Final Draft, though. But don't ever fall for the $400 price tag and get it for $99 if you're really serious about getting the software. Um, so, yeah. Uh, that software is indispensable. Um, and, yeah. Okay, we have about ten more minutes. Yeah, I got I got more to bounce on that because we haven't. We could talk craft of storytelling for hours, but we're going to break break it down since we're on this topic. So, bouncing off of what you say, uh, we you have all of these gatekeepers who are very snooty about these things, these format issues that he just uh, spoke of, and you have all these people who I'll give you some examples. I've had a producer tell me, a, re, a producer's reader tell me, I love your script, man. My producer uh, does not like exclamation points. You have to go through and take out every exclamation point in your script or he won't read it. I've also had uh, a producer's reader, separate producer's reader, because you have these readers who their, their job is to find good scripts. And so they found me on, they found us on InkTip. And they're like, dude, I love this script. Uh, and we don't use, I'm not a stickler for adverbs. They're like, this guy will refuse to read a single adverb in the script. So you, you, if you want me to send it to the producer, you're going to have to go through the script and erase all the adverbs, and then I'll send it to him. So I've had these insane things, but it just, it's, like, it's kind of a snapshot of what you're up against, which is these people who, like you said, they have these rules ingrained in their head. And maybe... You don't need to follow all those rules, but you at least need to be aware that there's a person who might be able to give your script to the person it needs to get to, who literally the only thing that's standing in the way is the format of your script. So I, I think the, the book that David recommended is great. There's a My favorite format book is called How Not to Write a Screenplay. It is my favorite book. It is a, a Hollywood reader who was doing it for like 30 years. 
And he's one of those guys who really was like, I don't like exclamation points. Um, and so uh, how not to write a screenplay is a great one. There's a guy, I'll, I'll slow down because I see some people writing. Um, there's a guy named Dave Trottier. And he has a blog called Dr. Format Says. Um, Dave Trottier is, and people ask him like the most specific things like, I'm trying to do a text message within a flashback, put down a blah, blah, blah. And he'll tell you how to specifically do that very thing that's weird, that you have an idea in your head, and you're like, I'm not sure how to bring it to life. He has two books. He has the Screenwriter's Bible, and he has... Uh, a, basically, that blog printed out into like 300 pages, Dr. Format says. So uh, those are two great books. Yeah. Does, well, does anyone else have a question? We'll have a few more minutes. Like if not, monopoly. then we can move on to the... Oh, wait. You have a question? Okay. Hold on. Okay. Here we go. Uh, all right, so I'm uh, having a bit of trouble coming up with. So let's say I'm coming up with an idea for us for a screenplay. How do you guys come up with ideas for yours? Because that's probably maybe a big, uh, big issue. Big issue. What do you think? So you can find inspiration all around you, which is very big. So I can tell you. <laughs> Um, like where I've gained inspiration. So a couple of my earlier features have been family stories, like things that have happened to people in my family, which have been unusual. Um, articles that you read online, articles that you read in the newspaper. Um, you can turn, you can meet an interesting person and build a character out of that person. You could take a theme or an issue that you care about and write characters and a plot around that theme. Um, you could take a situation and then write characters into that situation. So there are a variety of different approaches that you can take. Um, but it's it's all around you. Like I eavesdrop a lot. My husband makes fun of me because we'll be out in a restaurant and he'll be talking to me. But no, I'm not paying attention to him because I'm eavesdropping on the people next to me because they're having like a really interesting conversation. And I'm like, dialogue, dialogue. I'm going to write this into my next script. So eavesdropping helps a lot. Um, it's an image that you see. I don't know. There, there's just like so many, at least for me. I'm, I'm never at a loss, never at a loss for ideas. I have way too many ideas that I'll ever have time to sit down and write. Yeah, I mean, that too. Yeah, ideas, I mean, that's part of the mystery. Where do they come from? No one knows, but, uh, you know, if you're having, if you feel like you're not getting any ideas, maybe do something different. Read a book or go for a hike or something, you know what I mean? something to take your mind uh, out of its uh, cognitive rut that it might be in at the moment. I, 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 you know, I, but I think, you know, Dina said it, you know, everybody knows somebody in their family or acquaintances or they, a situation, uh, a newspaper article. I know that I, I took the script uh, all the way to a sale from a newspaper article once. I didn't, I just opened it. I saw the article. I went, "Damn, that's a movie," 
and uh, it never got made, but it did get it did yeah. get sold. Uh, you know, uh, people write whole movies just from titles. Yeah, Sometimes we, we did that before. Always. Yeah, we'll always start with title. You know, um, marketability. Yeah, um, I mean, if you have a title in your head, say "Snakes on a Plane." What a great title! <laughs> you can write the movie, right? Because you know, "Snakes on a Plane" says it all. Uh, you know, it's but it, it is. It's a uh, one of those things that can't be commodified or, 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 or planned very well. It's, 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 it's what? I don't know what. So you're asking not just how you come up with ideas, but how you take an idea and turn it into a movie? Sort of some, something in between that? Yeah, so, so like one thing I, I always tell, I always try to advise writers is uh, when you're coming up with an idea, a way to really fine-tune it is, why does this story need to happen here in this setting? And why does this story need to happen right now? And if you can't solidify both of those answers, then you're not ready to tell that story. So if that story could happen at any time in that character's life or that group of characters' life, then it's not the right story to tell. And if that story could happen in any setting in the whole world and the setting is not specific then you need to figure out how to make it more specific. And that will inform a lot of other ideas. Yeah, yeah you know, ideas beget ideas. Writing begets ideas. Sometimes a way to get there is just to write, even if you don't know where you're going. <laughs> that was awesome. It's like there's just a mind stretching. So uh, before I pass it to De Joe, I just want to also add, um, if you're trying to figure out whether or not an idea is a viable like film idea, uh, you need to think about how visual it is. And there's this thing about externalizing the internal, right? So if you're writing, if you have an idea that's all something like in somebody's head or it's just emotions or feelings, if you can't figure out a way to turn those emotions and those feelings and those thoughts into an image that will end up seeing up on a screen, then it's probably not the best film idea. It might be something that you want to write as a novel or a poem or in some other form of writing. Um, because, right? Because that's what makes yeah. what we do different, yeah. right? It's like we're writing words that form an image on the screen and we're not necessarily writing words that just live on a page to be read. I tend to tell uh, historical stories, so in my documentaries, so I often look to history um, for inspiration. And um, since we're sitting in a library, and because we haven't spoken much about doing research, yes. um, the librarian is your friend, um, and do research. Yes. I, I, I've gotten stories, uh, I've gotten ideas for films from stories people have told me that I thought sounded like a great story. And then when I researched it a little deeper, I realized, well, there's way more story here than what I originally thought, or it's even more interesting than I originally thought it would be. Um, but research is fun. It's a good way to get your juices flowing. Yeah, and I would add, add one last thing, uh, Messiah. Um, if you take, say, three or four or five movies that you personally really like, the kind of film you would watch more than once, you just think is a great film, right? Spend some time trying to figure out what is it about that those films that you like. Like, what do they have in common that makes you 
that makes them favorites of yours or left an impact on you, you know, and maybe work on crafting a story that has that similar element, some, you know, or potential to have those moments in those that set of movies that you yourself chose because you were like them or remember them, affected by them, and see how that applies to maybe a germ of an idea you have, you know? All right, well, thank you all for um, the panelists' questions and the Q&A and everything. And thank you, Deborah, for organizing this. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.